Hello and welcome to the podcast version of Scripps 5 Must Know Things. This episode for the Business Week ended 26th May 2023. This is Ian Haydock. This time, novel BMS drug shows promise in IPF. Novo's oral semaglutide compares well with injectable in weight loss. Tiva looks to innovative brands to return to growth. US setback for Intercept's Nash drug and India's improving environment for clinical trials. The development path for better idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF treatments, is strewn with failures, but Bristol-Myers Squibb is hoping for a more successful journey on the back of positive mid-stage data for the high dose of its oral LPA1 antagonist. Kevin Grogan writes the US major's high hopes are based on a phase two study which involved 276 IPF patients treated with 30 or 60 milligrams of BMS 986278, a potential first-in-class molecule, or placebo. Twice-daily administration of the 60 milligram dose over 26 weeks reduced the rate of decline in percent predicted forced vital capacity by 62% compared with placebo. The 30 milligram dose was not effective compared with the latter. BMS 986278 was well tolerated in both treatment arms of the trial, with rates of adverse events similar to placebo BMS noted. Getting the balance right between safety and efficacy has been challenging in IPF, a fatal lung scarring disease with a median survival time of 3-5 to five years following diagnosis and a 5-year survival rate of approximately 45%. There are only two drugs on the market for IPF, Roche's Esbriet and Boehringer Ingelheim's Ofev, both approved in the US in 2014, but both have tolerability issues. BMS Chief Medical Officer Samit Hirawat said the Phase 2 data for BMS 986278 give us the confidence to initiate our global Phase 3 clinical trial program. In the 23rd May investor note, analysts at Wells Fargo said that with gastrointestinal toxicity cited as a significant factor in patients discontinuing from Esbriet or Ofev, a more favourable tolerability profile is key. If BMS 986278's clinical profile is maintained in Phase 3 and given the relatively low adverse event rates seen with the 60mg dose, we see blockbuster potential. At least a $1 billion opportunity, but more data are needed to understand the competitive profile, they said. Other companies are also looking at LPA1 in fibrotic disease. Horizon Therapeutics is conducting potentially pivotal Phase 2b trials of HZN825, or Fipaxel-Parant, for IPF, having got hold of the LPA1 antagonist through its 2020 acquisition of Curzion Pharmaceuticals. Last October, AbbVie acquired DJS antibodies, gaining access to the private UK biotech's lead asset DJS002, a potentially first-in-class antibody directed at LPAR1. The drug is in preclinical testing for IPF and other fibrotic diseases. The most advanced IPF candidate in the clinic is Fibrogen's connective tissue growth factor targeting antibody Pamrevolumab, which has just completed enrolment in its second Phase 3 trial.
Nova Nordisk is looking ready for another successful expansion of its obesity franchise, with the first Phase 3 results of its oral semaglutide showing similar weight loss as the injectable version marketed as Wagovi. But the company will first need to wrestle with greater demand than it can supply. Jessica Merrill writes the first Phase 3 trial testing a high oral dose of the GLP-1 agonist semaglutide in adults with obesity yielded weight loss of 15.1% and 17.4%, depending on the two endpoints, and in line with the reductions seen with Wagovi. The company said it plans to file for regulatory approval of the high 50mg dose in the US and EU this year. Having the option to choose between a once-daily oral tablet or a once-weekly injection with similar safety and efficacy will give patients and providers more flexibility to determine the appropriate treatment for patients based on convenience and preference. However, a global launch of the high-dose oral tablet will depend on manufacturing capacity as the company continues to experience capacity constraints for Wagovi and Ozempic, the semaglutide injection approved for diabetes. The company has already reported positive Phase 3 data from two higher oral 25 and 50 mg doses to improve glycemic control in diabetics and has now demonstrated that the 50 mg dose can deliver weight loss in patients with obesity on par with what was seen in the trial supporting the US FDA approval of Wagovi in 2021. However, the company has struggled to keep up the supply for the drugs and said in May it would have to reduce the supply of the lower starting doses of Wagovi again this year after dealing with supply constraints all last year and ramping up another production line. An oral pill with similarly high levels of weight loss to Wagovi could also help Novo Nordisk defend its obesity franchise against new competition from Eli Lilly, which has launched a similar drug the dual GIP-GLP-1 agonist, Munjaro, for diabetes and is awaiting FDA approval for the drug in obesity. During Novo's first quarter earnings call, Chief Financial Officer Karsten Knudsen said the company would wait to see the results of the OASIS-1 and OASIS-4 trials before making final decisions about how best to invest in manufacturing capacity for the different formulations. Besides the OASIS-1 results mentioned earlier, OASIS-4 is a 64-week Phase 3b trial studying a 25mg dose of semaglutide in adults with obesity or overweight with one or more comorbidities. Tiva Pharmaceutical Industries, a company best known for selling generic drugs, said it will pivot more towards innovative drugs in the future as the headwinds for generics continue to mount. Manji Jackson writes that Teva has been struggling to increase revenue since 2017, but has a new strategy for growth over the next five years that involves investing more money in innovative brands and less capital in generic medicines. New CEO Richard Francis and his executive team presented a plan to return the company to growth in an investor event on 18th May. The company sees Austedo for tardive dyskinesia and Huntingdon's disease becoming a $2.5 billion product by 2027, with Uzedi for schizophrenia and biosimilars becoming meaningful revenue contributors as well. 
However, going forward, the company will chase fewer off-patent products in its generics business with a focus on high-value generics, particularly complex generics, such as drug device combinations and long-acting injectables that take advantage of Teva's capabilities. The generic business has come under increasing pressure in recent years, particularly in the US, and consolidation among many of the key players has not delivered the long-term growth that was expected. Teva won approval for two products already in 2023 that it highlighted as part of its innovative products portfolio, Uzedi and Austido XR, the latter offering tardive dyskinesia patients a once-daily treatment rather than twice-daily Austido. Teva's expectations for Austido growth assume that sales will more than double from $971 million in 2022 to $2.5 billion by 2027. Teva's late-stage branded drug pipeline also includes a long-acting formulation of the antipsychotic olanzapine in Phase 3 for schizophrenia, an inhaled corticosteroid, short-acting beta-agonist combination therapy in Phase 3 for asthma, and an anti-TL1A antibody in Phase 2 for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Well, there is broad agreement that the 19th May US FDA advisory panel's lopsided votes against recommending approval of Intercept Pharmaceuticals, Obeticolic Acid, or OCA, for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH, was a blow for that company. Opinion is more varied about whether the Gastrointestinal Drugs Advisory Committee's tight focus on safety and the clinical meaningfulness of meeting the surrogate efficacy endpoints will read through to other NASH drug candidates and their sponsors. Joseph Haas writes the committee voted 12 to 2 with two abstentions that Intercept's drug, an oral FXR agonist now in its second FDA review cycle, did not demonstrate efficacy that outweighs the risks in treating NASH patients with pre-cirrhotic fibrosis scores. The panel also voted by 15 to 1 to recommend that the FDA wait for Phase 3 outcomes data, perhaps another three years down the road, rather than provide accelerated approval for OCA based on the data available so far. The FDA's reviewers argued that the 8.6 to 12.8% treatment delta between study drug and placebo in the pivotal Phase 3 Regenerate trial for one of two surrogate endpoints Reduction of fibrosis score by one or more stages without worsening of NASH was a modest benefit, even though the trial met statistical significance on that endpoint with the higher of two doses tested, which was 25 mg daily. The 10 mg dose did not hit the fibrosis endpoint and neither dose met a second surrogate endpoint of resolution of NASH without worsening of fibrosis. The intercept review is the first test of the surrogate endpoints identified by the FDA in its guidance on NASH drug development. The panel's views reflected the level of benefit and the safety profile of OCA, so were not a clear-cut assessment of whether the surrogate endpoints were good predictors of clinical outcomes. OCA has a 22nd June action date at the FDA, and analysts fairly unanimously predicted a second CRL. 
Intercept refiled its new drug application in December in the US following a 30-month effort to address concerns in a June 2020 complete response letter. H.C. Wainwright analyst Ed Arcee said in a 22nd May note that the OCA panel review bodes ill for the FXR agonist class in general, including Intercept's follow-on compound INT787 and Turns Pharmaceuticals, TERN101, both in Phase 2. We see little, if any, read-through to other classes of drugs for NASH, as most other successful candidates have a markedly more benign safety and tolerability profile while also offering stronger efficacy, including in NASH resolution in some cases, he added. Following the advisory committee, William Blair analyst Andy Sier posited on 22nd May that the likely next drug in line, Madrigal Pharmaceuticals THR-beta agonist Resmitiron, would fare better during an FDA review as it hit both surrogate efficacy endpoints in its Phase 3 Maestro NASH study and its safety profile, which includes a high rate of gastrointestinal side effects, might be seen by the agency as less concerning. Finally, if you're entering India for clinical trials, then don't do it half-heartedly, just go all in. But be careful about the initial choice of disease areas. That was the advice that Novartis's head, Global Clinical Operations, Badri Srinivasan, had for his peer at Amgen, which appears to be evaluating opportunities in the world's most populous country, Andrew Gangerdi writes. Responding to a question from Amgen's Senior Vice President, Global Development, Rob Lenz, at a recent summit, Srinivasan said that while a number of companies have dipped their toes in the waters, going in there and saying this is what we come into India for, and this is what we need from India, would be very powerful. Nonetheless, Novartis's clinical operations head also suggested that companies need to be selective, choosing a disease segment that is perhaps better done outside India, and then bringing it to India may result in difficulties. That may reflect poorly on India. Do your feasibility work carefully, and then go into those areas in India with full gusto, Srinivasan advised Lens at the USA-India Chamber of Commerce, or USAIC, annual biopharma and healthcare summit. The assessments are noteworthy given India's ongoing efforts to lift its clinical research segment out of a trough via a slew of regulatory reforms, improved infrastructure and growing clinical expertise. The attention of big pharma sponsors suggests that things are headed in the right direction. The Novartis executive outlined how the company is looking at India as a strategic location given the Swiss group's wider thrust into orphan and rare diseases, areas with high disease burden and the increasing need for diversity and inclusion in clinical trials. We actually have somewhere like 55 trials going on in India. We have over the course of just the last few years recruited over 10,000 patients in India, Srinivasan said at the summit. Other big pharma sponsors like Johnson & Johnson have previously highlighted opportunities for India as they seek to shift trial activity elsewhere around the world. Clinical trial activity in India has been tepid over the past several years amid uncertainties and delays caused by evolving regulations at the time, many aspects of which have now since been addressed, 
and past trial-related public interest litigation. A report by PWC India and USAIC suggested that some of the historical perceptions about conducting trials in India no longer stand. Regulatory reforms post-2013 and the New Drugs and Clinical Trial Rules of 2019 have streamlined the approval processes, reduced timelines by 30-40%, to and introduced several exemptions and provisions to improve the overall efficiency of conducting trials, it noted. Top 20 pharma-sponsored trials in India rose 10% since 2013, following multiple regulatory reforms, the report noted, although the country's contribution to global trials averaged at about 4% per year from 2010 to 2022, despite its large population base. A sideline white paper last year also noted that 10% of Asia-Pacific trials included an Indian site, according to data from 2012 to 2021. At the US AIC summit, Dr. Cynthia Verst of IQVIA referred to a very positive influence of India's NDCT regulations, wherein trial startup timelines in the country are now very comparable with those in other key regions. India's Central Drugs Standard Control Organization now has 90 days to decide whether to approve global clinical trial applications. The improved outlook for trials in India notwithstanding, there are still areas of concern that need to be addressed. Novartis's Srinivasan sought continued improvement in the ability to start up trials in India and continued streamlining of the regulatory landscape along the lines of improvements already done and also flagged up talent management in trials as a huge area of concern. That's all for this week. Many thanks for joining us. All these articles, as usual, are linked in the article accompanying this podcast and form just a small part of Scripps' global coverage of the biopharma industry last week. So do log in to access all of our content or sign up for a free trial to see what you're missing. Bye for now.